inviting the Holy Spirit here and uh, picking out songs that just fit perfectly into where we're going in our series here in Nehemiah. If you have your Bibles, your phones, um, you can turn to uh, Nehemiah 8. That's the core of, of what we're going to be looking at. Um, and Nehemiah 8 through 10 is a uh, just a powerful passage of Scripture where Nehemiah shifts from rebuilding to leading a spiritual revival uh, in Israel. And as I was studying it earlier in the week, and I looked at where Israel had been, and within only a, a few short months, uh, Nehemiah, having had a, starting in chapter 1, uh, just having a burden and a passion for these people that are 800 miles away from him that he's only sort of connected to by culture or ethnic. Um, and, and he has this passion. He just starts pleading to God to raise up someone to, to rescue them. And through that, God obviously lifts him up and brings him in. So he travels to Jerusalem. He goes out by himself. He looks around the walls, sees how, you know, as an engineer or whatever, checks out the walls. And then he comes back and he rallies the people. Um, and, and within 56 days, they had fortified the walls. Uh, and so if you, if you think about it, in a, in a few short months, the children of Israel went from a couple of them being a, a few thousand, whatever, being in Jerusalem with all the walls crumbled, living in chaos um, and a lot in captivity, uh, Nehemiah himself off 800 miles away. And within a couple months, he fortifies their walls, uh, or fortified their city. He purified the people, and he de- and he brought unity. He dedicated uh, he dedicated and unified the people, and he brought brought renewed uh, economic stability. And then he led them in a spiritual revival. And I found that fascinating. That a lot of times we tend to think first spiritual revival, and then hopefully the physical comes along. Uh, but Nehemiah did the opposite. He invested everything that he had into develop into caring for them physically before he moved into the spiritual. And as I was like contemplating where I want to take that, it really struck me. It's almost as simple as a family structure, um, like your family. Your your child is born. You care deeply about their physical needs. I mean, you give them everything, and they give nothing in return but you give them everything, everything. And that builds a tremendous platform for you for, to influence their lives so that they want to follow Christ, so that they want to follow God's ways. And, and, and in a way, this is what Nehemiah was doing. He was first taking care of their spiritual needs so that he could then move into something much more important and taking care of their spiritual needs and creating a spiritual revival. Um, and within a couple months... They launched a revival, a movement that shaped the course of history. And so I think at the beginning of the week, as, yeah, as I was contemplating that, studying that, I just started to, to pray for us here at Providence. And at the beginning of the week, my first prayers were that God would choose to use Providence for a movement that would, that would change the world uh, in whatever, whatever way he's called us to. And as I continued to pray that throughout the week and studying different movements of God, uh, this one included and some others, it really, there's nothing 
like, like, like God just sort of randomly picks here, like, okay, I'm going to start a movement now. I'm going to start a movement now. And here. But no, God wants to do that with all his people. And, and this, Nehemiah 8 through 10, lays out a perfect plan or of what God, how God wants to use us to launch a movement through his power. And so hopefully we can, uh, in the next couple of minutes, we can break that down. And, um, the objective, the purpose of this message, the next 30 minutes, is to uh, that providence would launch a movement that would change the world. So I think if we can accomplish that, we uh, had a successful 30 minutes. So, uh, But we'll need prayer for that. So I want to start with a word of prayer so that it's not my words, but that it's God's. So uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning as we move into Nehemiah and we look at uh, spiritual revival, and God, we look at how you used Israel and you used Nehemiah, you used Ezra, you rallied the people around. God, I pray that that would be our story here at Providence. Um, I know that you have a purpose and a calling for us, God. And I just pray that your spirit would move in and that we would have a deep hunger, a desire, a longing to be part of that and give uh, whatever it takes to, to walk, uh, walk in your story and in your purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, in 1806... Uh, five young college students uh, were, meet, were meeting for prayer. And uh, it was their custom. Every Wednesday and every Saturday, they would meet for prayer. Uh, just random college students. But uh, in Williams College, led by a young man named Samuel Mills. Uh, and one, according to history, one Wednesday or Saturday, whichever it was, anyway, it doesn't matter, as they were out in the field praying. Uh, and they were specifically praying that God would raise up missionaries for the foreign field. And to give context to this, at this time, Amer- the churches in America had not sent any missionaries to the foreign field. There were no mission sending agencies. Uh, any missions work that was done was really done uh, to Native Americans or just in, gen- in, in America. And Samuel Mills and a couple of his friends had this burning passion that they would take the gospel to the foreign field. Uh, And so they began to meet together and to pray regularly. And one uh, time as they were praying out in the field, a thunderstorm came. They found shelter, the closest place they could find, which was a haystack. Uh, And so today that's called the the haystack prayer movement. And from that, there were five students. And as they were praying specifically that God would put the obligation on their heart to go out. Um, And Samuel Mills, at the end of it, as they were uh, at the end of the uh, prayer, said, stood up and said, we can do this if we will. And that launched a movement uh, that within four years, they, the first mission sending agency was established by these college students. Uh, and within a couple years after that, the first missionaries went to India from that group. And they also started the student volunteer movement. And in the next 50 years, that movement sent out 1,250 missionaries to the foreign field. Um, And historians today say that movement, any agency that specifically is built to send uh, Christians to the foreign field can in some way connect their path back to that prayer meeting that five college students had as they launched that movement. And it's to me, as as I was studying that and how that plays into Nehemiah, it's a perfect example of how people that had no influence, no power, nothing but 
Christ and a passion for Christ and prayer and the Word of God launched a movement that changed the world. And before we, I also want to briefly, because it's so easy to look at a movement and say, that was for Samuel Mills, that was for them, um, and just like, it was just sort of random, just sort of like someone winning the lottery. Um, but it's also interesting to note that they didn't just start this movement on their own. There's, and, and this, there's so much to a movement that behind the scenes, um, his father had been a faithful pastor his whole life at a small community church. Um, his mother had, and this was a very remarkable prayer at the time, but had specifically prayed when he was born that he would become a missionary. And, uh, and, and she actually called that out on him at about 18 or 19 years old. Uh, but it was especially remarkable given that there was almost no emphasis at the time for missions work. Um, and the other thing that was, and this ties into where we want to go with Nehemiah, in the late 1700s, uh, a great revival swept through the northeastern states, Connecticut, uh, Massachusetts. These are uh, the, the second great awakening. Uh, it was interesting to note it was led by kids ages 12 to 18, and thousands upon thousands came to Christ. And then as these kids from 12 to 18 passionately followed Christ, it moved into the 20-year-olds and the 30-year-olds and didn't get much further than that. But uh, it's interesting to note that that swept in and actually really influenced the church where uh, Samuel Mills' father was a pastor and really influenced Samuel Mills. And so behind a movement, it takes people building a foundation. It takes fathers that will faithfully serve, mothers that will faithfully uh, pray for their children and serve and be willing to send their kids out. And it takes a body of believers passionate about the name of Jesus Christ to create a movement that people like see value and they want to go. They want to be part of it. And that's what, uh, and that's, that's sort of the basis of where this movement came from. So it's so much more than one person. Um, and this is what exactly what happened in Nehemiah. It's so much more, uh, than just Nehemiah, so much more than just Ezra. And, and it's incredible to, to look at in faithfulness what can happen years later. Uh, so let's, let's look, I wanna, we're gonna look at Nehemiah 8, 1 through 12. I'm gonna break it up into three different, uh, segments. Uh, David, you can put up the first slide. Uh, I'm gonna look at verses 1 through 3, and then 4 through 8, and then 9 through 12, and look at how Nehemiah led the children of Israel into a spiritual revival because it really lays the groundwork for a revival. And the first, uh, we'll read the first three verses here once of Nehemiah 8. And I'm reading out of the ESV. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. And on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. The first thing that I really wanted to look at is if we look at a spiritual revival, a movement, 
something that really changes the course of history, changes our lives. The first thing that we see in Nehemiah 1 here that he that is God's people here had a desire to hear God's word. They had a hunger for God's word. Uh, and that has to be the basis of a movement, has to be the basis of revival, whether as an individual or as a group here at Providence. Because uh, the word of God does three things. The first thing that it does is it really shows us who God is. Um, it shows us his holiness. It shows us his righteousness. It shows us how we how we can't even see the face of God from his whole with his holiness. So so it places the word of God puts God shows us where God is. And it also doesn't allow us to create a God of our imagination. Because uh, I think that is an, a temptation, a struggle that each one of us have is we want to create a God of our imagination that serves our purposes. Just like a little kid wants what they sh- shouldn't have. We, we tend to want to put a, build a God that serves our interests. And God is saying, no, I'm up here. I'm, my, my, I'm, my holiness, my righteousness is up here. But then the second thing it does is God's word shows us who we are. Uh, our, it shows us our depravity, our fallenness. Uh, it shows us God's here and we're here. Um, it, um, yeah, it, so I think like for, for us, because like, I'm just going to speak for myself right now. Speaking of, of where we are as a, 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 who I am as a person, it's easy for me to, to look out here and say, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a morally upright person. I don't have any addictions. Um, not struggling with pornography. I'm not struggling with, uh, yada, yada. You know, I can go through the list and I can, uh, I didn't covet Ken's business. Um, I didn't covet any of your, uh, uh, jo- jobs. But I can go through the list and I can see, like, I'm doing pretty good as a dad. I mean, yeah, last time I preached, I told you how I threw food and told him to go clean it up in anger. But overall, I do, pr- I do pretty good. I mean, I only lose my time for a couple times a week. But, but, uh, but so it's, it's really good, easy to say, to, to, to think, I'm a good per- I'm, I'm a good person. And almost in the same sense, say, the only reason I, I need God or I need Christ is to help get me to heaven because that's the only thing I really can't control. The rest I can control. Um, and this isn't original with me, but how you know that you're not a morally upright person and that you have a depraved heart is, uh, there is, I would have no interest or, uh, to have all my thoughts, my actions, anything that I've done in the past week alone scrolling up here on the screen. Uh, that would, I would, I would, I would be gone. I wouldn't be here and you would never see me again. Um, and I, and if there's anyone here that can stand up and say, hey, I'd have no problem with that, then you please come up here and preach because I would be more than happy to sit down. But, so the Word of God, what I'm really getting at is even a lot of times when we do good, it's out of duty. A lot of times when you're a good father, husband, person in the community, it's almost a, it's, it's almost out of a duty, uh, and versus really from the heart. And, 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 and the Word of God shows us our depravity, even if we have our act together on the outside. 
Um, and so, and so that's why a revival, a movement from God really needs to be grounded in God's Word because it shows us who God is. It shows us who we are. But then it also shows us how we were really designed as humans to flourish here on earth, to really be satisfied. Um, and this is a very int- important part of what God's Word does because it's so easy to be caught up in, um, creating something where we, yes, like I said before, where we need God to get us to heaven, but then after that, we really pursue what we selfishly want. Um, and we use our resources, our time, our interests, whatever God has given us, and we, and we pursue our selfish interests. And God is saying, you can't do that. Because if you look at my word, I'm going to tell you, like, that's not bringing happiness my word, in my word, I'm showing you how to, how to truly live if you want to flourish. And the other thing that it does is it also doesn't allow us, um, or we should expect, it, it also will create conflict with the world around us. Um, and I think it's very easy for us, for me personally, to want to take scripture and sort of um, just make it a little uh, cleaner, smoother, because it does bring conflict to the world around us. Um, and so I guess what I'm trying to say on that, like, the gospel is great. The gospel is what all humans, what every, every person needs. Um, and when we tend to, to water it down to meet current culture, we end up losing the power of the gospel. Uh, and so that's why in these first three verses, it says they all gathered to hear and that they were attentive and the, the very the core of their movement was started on their passion for the God, uh, for the Word of God, uh, and then verses four through eight, and this is a very important next step is God's Word must be understood, and so I read four through eight, and then we'll dive into that a little bit. Uh, there, and uh, if you look in these verses, there's a lot of really long names. We're just gonna. Like say these were very important people, and then just skip over them, because uh, otherwise I'm just going to be hacking through it, and someone's going to call me out and say I have no idea what I'm saying. Which, uh, and Ezra the scribe stood on a wood, wooden platform that they had made before all the per- that they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood all these important men, uh, and on his left hand, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people as he stood, as he opened it. All the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen and Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. A bunch of law important men again. And they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that all the people understood the reading. God's word must be understood. And this was a fascinating four verses for me to sort of break down and study for myself. Uh, and I think here we see for everything Nehemiah did over here of in 56 days rebuilding the wall, I think here we see Nehemiah's greatest act of leadership. And that was not looking over here and making it all about himself and saying, look what I did. And when he came over here to, to launch the spiritual revival, the first thing he did was he stepped back. And he, he gave, he empowered Ezra. He gave Ezra the authority to, to lead the spiritual revival. 
And so I think, like if I look at it, this is Nehemiah's greatest aspect of leadership, to know when to step back and not make it about himself and make it and, and say, Ezra, this you are a priest, you are a scribe, you spent your whole life studying, practicing the law, and teaching it to others. Go and get and, and Ezra step. I mean, and Nehemiah step back. Uh, I, I think if Nehemiah wouldn't have done that, that that spiritual revival couldn't have been launched. Uh, but but I, it had to be a tremendous temptation for Nehemiah to to keep wanting to have that platform. Um, and it's interesting to note Ezra had um, he had prepared his whole life for this that God would use him in a mighty way to change the world. So Ezra had put the work in to be ready uh, for this moment. And in verse 8, it says it gave the sense. That's literally... Now, this is from John MacArthur. So if you know MacArthur, very passionate, expository preaching, hatred of anything else. But he says, this was Ezra giving an expository message. And so the idea behind it is they read the Word. They had a deep longing, hunger for the Word. But God's word must be understood. It's not just this mythical that just sort of we just know what it means. And it's just but uh, but God's word must be understood. Um, and to make it practical for us here today, um, last Sunday as Marcus was preaching, he shared his personal story of how God audibly spoke to him to be a defender of the faith. Um, and he and he and he yeah he gave he shared his his story his testimony. And for us here as a church, and Mark is sharing his God's calling as a defender of the faith, we look at what Ezra was here. Um, if we want to launch a movement, something that really shapes, to, that we can look back and say, oh, oh my goodness, I can't believe that we were part of God's story here. Um, it's very important for us to, um, as a church, I want to be careful how I say this so it doesn't sound like, well, anyway, to really empower and rally around Marcus and Narita and their position here at Providence. Um, now, what I don't want you to hear is that I'm asking you to be a bunch of Marcusites. Uh, we, we do not follow Marcus. We only follow Jesus. Uh, but, but there is where the people rallied around. It's, in verse 4, it says they built a platform to hold 14, uh, that helped 14 people. Those 14 people were other Levites and priests, and they were there to show their agreement to what Ezra was saying. And there was this sense of rallying around. We've, they've been broken. They've been scattered, uh, the children of Israel. And now there's this sense of rallying around Ezra. Um, and so I think it's very important as a unified people, uh, as a, yeah, a coming together, to really rally around uh, Marcus's and and God's calling. I think this is more what I'm. What I can get God's calling that He has placed on His life as a defender of the faith, um, and and to lift them up and and yeah, be unified. And the one last point on this, and I just want to read verse six again because this is in essence what a good teacher does. This is what Nehemiah, what Ezra did. Um, and this is what someone that is has a has a calling to defend the faith. Uh, and Ezra uh, blessed the Lord, uh, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen and Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. 
the first thing, a great teacher, it's not about them. We see this in Nehemiah, and we see this on it from Ezra. It's not about them. It's about them truly having a passion for God, for Christ, and His Word, and that the Word just makes them want to fall down in worship to God. And then the response of the rest of the people is, is seeing that person's passion for Christ and to collectively say amen, amen, and fall down in worship. And that's what a, a great, like someone that God has called to be a teacher, uh, that their, their calling in life is, and the response from that. Because, not because of them, but because of the Word of God. Uh, and that's a very important part. It's, yeah, again, it's never about one person. It's never about any of us. It's about, uh, it's about the name of Jesus Christ. Um, and then we're going to move into the third part of, so the, we've got God's desire, God's people desire to hear God's word. God's word must be understood. And the third part is, uh, verses nine through twelve. God's ways calls for a joyous celebration. And, and Nehemiah, who was the governor and Ezra, the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law, of the law. Then said, sorry, then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. I kept studying and studying and studying this part, and I kept telling my wife, this part is so powerful, but it's not coming together for me. I just feel like I'm reading commentaries. Um, so uh, like I know in my head what I want to share, so please bear with me a little bit here. Um, but the idea is, for the children of Israel, all of a sudden the word of God crashed down on them and they saw their, they saw all the, the, the idol worship that they'd done in the past. They saw their city that had been in ruins. They were living in a crumbled city of, of Jerusalem. They saw they were in captivity. And all of a sudden all this crashed down on them and the only thing that they could do was mourn, was weep, and just cry out in sadness at the loss of, of, of what they experienced. And then the, it took the Levites, the le- spiritual leaders, to lead them into celebration uh, and that the joy of the Lord would be their strength. So their, the init- their initial response was just to, just to see everything, how they, the, their failure, how they, how they missed it, what they could have had and what they didn't have. Um, and going back to that first part, when we know who God is, when we see who we are, uh, our response is going to be exactly like the children of Israel, sorrow, to weep, to recognize how far we are from God and this gulf, this chasm that we can't, we can't get. And, and so we'll just, we'll just weep. We'll just see. Uh, um, but then that, then that turns into rejoicing. 
And how does that happen for us? Uh, and I think it's when we see the holiness of God's nature and His righteousness in light of who we are, our failures, our sins, uh, we see our inability to, to experience that joy. Um, and so, sorry, I got... See, I, and, I just, and I think when we see... yeah, I'm going to back up here a little bit. Sorry. When we see the holiness of God over here in our sinfulness and that collides, uh, God covers it. With his, that's where God covers it with His grace, uh, with the blood of Jesus. Um, and so in light of all our shortcomings, our heart, uh, our weeping, uh, grace enters the picture. Uh, and without, gra- without grace, we can't experience that the joy of the strength is our Lord. We'll just stay in sorrow. So it's that, it's that grace that, uh, that really becomes what allows us to experience that joy when we see who we are, we see who God is, and that grace entering the picture. Um, and now the joy of the Lord can be my strength. And this is going back a little bit to what I just said, but God's Word informs me of who God is, who I am, how far I've fallen. Yet God has set through Christ, or because of Christ, under Christ, because of the cross, that you are loved, forgiven, holy, spotless, and blameless in the sight of God. And that turns into rejoicing. Um, and then in this Scripture, they are called to be generous. And when we see what God has done, what God has freely given, uh, we can freely and generously give to others, just like the children of Israel were called here to do. And our, and our rejoicing, as we rejoice, as that sorrow turns to rejoicing, we have to be generous. Uh, uh, it has to lead to generosity to those in need. Every part of our life must be changed if we say we know Christ. The mark of a transformed, a follower of Christ, is one who doesn't simply hear the Word of God, uh, but it is the person who allows the Word of God to affect every part of their life. It shapes their life. Uh, and so I don't know on this last part of of that sorrow, weeping that they were experiencing from seeing what they had lost. If we can, can we see ourselves in that? Like everything, like all the times that we have, that we've just really messed up and we've hurt people, we've hurt God, and how that turns into the joy of the Lord with the grace of God. That we need, it's that grace of God. It's the umbrella of Jesus Christ. Um, I hope I've brought a little bit of, uh, uh, clarity to that or understanding to that. Uh, and then so just in con- trying to pull it all together in a, in a conclusion, uh, I had this idea of how I wanted to close it, and I went to go find a book, and I happened to find um, instead um, uh, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire that I had forgotten I had. And so I decided, well, I'll just read again the first chapter of it, because I just, like, I just, there it is. Uh, and so I ended up here changing my... Uh, conclusion, but Jim Simbla is in the first chapter sharing uh, of how Brooklyn Tabernacle launched basically as a movement. It was a very, and most of you know the story, but a very small church that their mortgage was 285 bucks a month. They were bringing in about $85 a month. And so they were underwater. They were struggling. Uh, their benches were breaking apart as people were sitting on them, etc. And um, 
And one day, and he started sharing a couple, a little bit of how some miracles that were happening, but then all of a sudden that how prayer, how, how God just put on their heart a passion for his word and for prayer, and how that one Sunday morning as he was preaching, all of a sudden he said the words just left him. He had nothing. He just stood there and said, I apologize, but I've got nothing to share. We're just going to pray. And they started praying, and all of a sudden a young man comes running up and just apologizing and apologizing, saying he'll never do it again. He'll never do it again. And Jim's like, what are you talking about? And here, this was the usher, and he had been taking money out of the the offerings. And uh, he said, well, there, uh, and that was one problem solved out of a thousand, is what he said. But but through that, uh, he, he brought out, like, that was that was God bringing conviction. They, he had no idea this guy was doing it. And, and, uh, and through that, through that movement, the, the, the movement of the Brooklyn Tabernacle and their ministry was launched. And Jim, in his book, says, uh, he said, I discovered an astonishing truth. God is attracted to weakness. He can't resist those who humbly and honestly admit how desperately they need him. And he also says, in a parallel vein, people are attracted to honesty uh, or are not put off by honesty either. Uh, I didn't have to put up a ministerial front I could just preach God's word as best I knew and then call the congregation to prayer and worship and let God take over from there. Uh, and I thought that was a sort of, that's sort of a perfect wrap up to, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not, a, it's not about us. It's, uh, and it's fine to, or we should, our weaknesses, our failures, the things that we mourn, like, instead of hiding those things, like, it's not about it's not about being a hypocrite. Let's just put it out there. It's who it's who we are. We're we're broken. We've hurt, uh, and let's come together uh, as a people, and and recognize that God is attracted to our weakness. God's attracted to our brokenness, and He wants to bring our He wants to bring His grace over us and launch a movement. Um, and then I thought I'd just end with uh, as we're looking at providence and what providence. Can't not can be, but will be. If I wouldn't say will be, I wouldn't be here, um, because I really believe God really wants to use providence in a mighty way. Uh, just look at the three things: a passion for God's word, uh, because it breaks us down who we are, who God is, who we are. Um, a oh, gotta use. Sorry, gotta look at my notes. Uh, God's word must be understood. Having a passion to know God's word. And then having a joyous celebration and knowing that it's because of God's grace and not because of anything that we did. And as we look at launching a movement, maybe we can, just in the words of end with Samuel Mills, we can do this if we will. Um, thank you for your time and attention. Marcus, I'll turn it back over to you. They realize the mess they're in. And the Levites and, and Ezra tell them, no, you, now get up and rejoice. And it's because of the grace of God and the mercy of God. Anyone else have anything you want to say? Yeah. Uh, I'll pass Mike. Well, thank you, um, wherever he is, for sharing. The, I, when he said, um, the word of God crashed down on them. When the holiness of God collides with our sin, the grace of Jesus covers us. That's so beautiful. 
Thank you. Anyone else? Okay, Wayne, are you leaving sometime soon? Tomorrow morning. Let's just pray for Wayne. Uh, you and Carol? Okay. So let's pray for them as they go to Mexico tomorrow. Thank you again, Brent, for being a good servant of the Lord today. Let us pray together. And now, Lord Jesus, we commend the rest of our day to you. We ask that your power, your grace, and your mercy would come down and give us a spirit of generosity and rejoicing as we realize the great gulf that existed between you and us. You are holy, you are perfect, and you are clean, and you are good. And if we could put all your thoughts up on the screen, they would be that. They'd be holy and good. In fact, your thoughts were up on the screen today. And then we put ours up there and our brokenness and our humanness up there, and we all want to run away. And we wanted to run away from you. And you and your great love, while we were yet sinners, gave us your only Son so that we could be delivered from those things and live in the freedom that comes from knowing that your power and your blood covers our sins. And that gives us a moment to just say thank you. Lord, I pray that you would be with Wayne and Junior and Carol as they fly tomorrow. Keep them safe. Watch over them. Be with uh, Willis and his new wife in Mexico today. In Jesus' name, amen.